0: That's kind of conversation between the soul. That's competition between the soul. Hello, American Prestige listeners. It's Derek. I'm joined, as always, by my friend and co-host, Danny Bessner. And we have not one, but two Fantastic guests that we're speaking with this week. Uh, we are, as I assume most of you know, approaching the one-year uh, anniversary of the start of Russia's invasion of Ukraine. Uh, and so to discuss where things have come uh, over this past year and where things might go uh, in the near future, we are joined by Emma Ashford, who is a senior fellow for Reimagining Grand, U.S. Grand Strategy at the Stimson Center. Uh, she just had a book published last year. Congratulations, Emma. The Oil, the State and War, the Foreign Policies of Petrostates. states uh, And joining Emma is Anatole Levin. Uh, senior fellow at the Quincy Institute for Responsible Statecraft uh, his most recent book was Climate Change and the Nation State published in twenty twenty uh, Thank you both for coming on the program for uh, what uh, I'm sure will be an excellent discussion.
1: Thanks for having us thank you
0: so uh, i I just want to throw it to you guys uh, on a very general level uh, here we are you know again approaching the one year anniversary of the start of this war. Where do you see things uh, standing now and how does it uh sort of align with where you thought we might be a year ago uh, at this point?
1: Yeah, I mean, so uh, I think... You know, that, that question is itself a problem because trying to predict anything in Ukraine, uh, if you look at the last year, you should probably not try to predict where things are going. Um, a year ago at this time, we're, what, about two weeks out, a couple of weeks out from the invasion. Um, you know, I think most observers, myself included, assumed that if and when Russia invaded, that they would probably steamroller, the Ukrainian forces, um, that they might succeed in their drive to Kiev, that they might succeed in toppling the Ukrainian government. Um, and then the Russians turned out to be um, remarkably incompetent. The Ukrainians turned out to be both lucky and better prepared than than we thought they were. Um, and, you know, the result has been a, a war that I think most of us thought would last no more than a, a couple of weeks or a month um you know we're now past year one and heading into what really does look like a very protracted conflict um where uh, to be frank i don't think the victor is clear at all i I think you know both sides are at this point relatively evenly matched
2: yes i I must say I, i always thought that a russian attempt to capture kiev would be would turn into a disaster uh because uh, uh, not necessarily the initial uh, conquest, but that that the Russians would face massive uh, civil disobedience and guerrilla warfare. Uh, And for that reason, I I, uh, didn't think that um, before the war that the Russians would try to capture gear. I thought what they'd do would be uh, to take the Russian-speaking areas of the East and South uh, and um, either use them to negotiate uh, federal Ukraine under heavy Russian influence, uh, or do what it turns out they've done, which is uh, in the areas they've captured, which is uh, claimed to have annexed them. Um, And I think that was actually the beginning of the Russian disaster that the Russians tried to do both. Um, And uh, I mean, simply did not have the troops. Uh, to do both simultaneously. Uh, Of course, I mean, there were tremendous mistakes of Russian strategy of tactics. There was Putin's failure to uh, mobilize enough troops in general. But I think it also does simply go back to the fact that they they tried to do far too much with the, the forces available to them at that time. And the Russian effort has never really recovered.
0: How we, how do you both assess? Uh, maybe Anatole, you could take this one first. The the, the response from uh, the U.S. in particular, but NATO, um, the role that that Europe and the U.S. have played in this conflict, um, and I, I want to ask this in two parts because there's an international component to this and sort of uh, the drive to make everybody all over the world choose up sides. But let's focus first on the response. As it, as it pertains directly to Ukraine, you know, has, has the administration managed to remain relatively contained in its response, in your opinion, or do you feel like things uh, have started sp- spinning uh, maybe a little bit out of control?
2: Well, I mean, in terms of some of the demands that we've heard uh, from the U.S. Congress and commentators and, of course, from Eastern Europe, for uh, direct American involvement, you, you know, uh, no-fly zone, which is code for sending in the American Air Force, uh, or, um, you know, America to clear Russian uh, ships from the Black Sea. Uh, the Biden administration obviously has has done it successfully so far, has done its best to, to avoid that. Um, I think a key problem has been that uh, the, the, the weapons supplies to Ukraine uh, which, of course, I mean, are, are justified as far as they go in terms of defending Ukraine, but have not been linked to any political or diplomatic strategy for trying to to end the war. Uh, and at the moment, um, you know, it's, uh, it it's not really clear if if um, either that the, the Biden administration uh, has such a. As strategy or at least not a not a viable one
1: so i i think it's kind of important to not look back at the last year with very rose-tinted glasses because i think that's sort of where much of the discourse is now that the biden administration has done a really great job that the ukrainians are fighting back that this is all about u.s resolve um and, you know, I, I think at the same time as I think the Biden administration has done a pretty good job on a lot of things, um, you know, including the early intelligence sharing that probably helped the Ukrainians to blunt some of those early offensives, you know, including, um, as, as Anatol says, including restraining the worst impulses of, of folks on this side of the pond to actually intervene directly and start a NATO-Russia war. I, I do think the Biden administration made some mistakes as well, and we should probably acknowledge those. I I mean, I, I think you know they let Europe get out in front of the U.S. on some of the sanctions questions early on that really ratcheted up tensions that that made um, sort of caused a huge spike in global energy prices for a couple of months in the spring right that that really wasn't necessary um, to to have happened that way. I, I think they also um, you know failed to prevent this conflict in the first place right and, and you could I think make the argument that. By the time the Biden administration came into office, this thing was almost baked in. But again, we we sort of failed to dissuade the Russians. We failed to negotiate with them. We failed to deter them, right? So we we failed to find a path that could have prevented this conflict. And that is something in retrospect, I think historians are going to want to talk about a bit more. And then I guess on, on the last sort of six months or so, um, you know, I do think by the summer of, of 2022, U.S. policy had kind of settled into an equilibrium where, you know, we're sending new weapons systems in response to changing things on the ground. But uh, from my perspective, you know, the strategic thinking appears to have stopped about there. Um, As Anatole says, we really don't seem to have a plan for where this is going, how it wraps up, what we want out of this war, you know, what would our ideal outcomes be? Um, And so from my point of view, that's sort of the one other place the administration's falling down a little.
2: Uh, i just like, if I may, just like to add that that I I entirely agree with Emma. I think that the administration uh, and the French and Germans, by the way, could have done much more uh, to try to negotiate a a reasonable compromise with Russia before the war. Um, And uh, something that people really haven't noticed is is the fact that, after all, uh, Russia could have invaded with much more success from a Russian point of view back in 2014 you know, I mean, invaded the whole of the country. Uh, or they could have done it, you know, basically at any point between then and 2022. And the fact that Putin hesitated for so long before doing that, um, you know, is, is an indication that they, they didn't want to completely tear up their, their uh, relations with the West. How could the administration
3: not have any strategic viewpoint? And what does that say? Because if that's true, that's a gigantic, gigantic problem like like apokal
1: I mean look my my sense is that the administration has a strategic perspective but their strategic perspective is we're we're in this to win it we're in this as long as it takes um that's not a strategy right we all know that's not a strategy that's more of a hope and if you talk to administration officials you know um we are starting to hear some glimmers you know leaks to the press that suggest that maybe they're starting to think about the end game here maybe they're starting to think about when they go back to talking to the Russians. Um, but but basically the official line is, you know, that Ukraine will decide when this war is over. Um, and again, like, as, as Anastasia said, you know, this is a war that, that on the part of Ukraine is entirely justified, right? And we should be supporting Ukraine. But I do think policymakers just aren't doing quite enough to distinguish you know American strategic interests from Ukrainian strategic interests and I think you know those are beginning to diverge um, and that divergence is probably going to get worse going forward
2: yes because uh, you know the Ukrainian government and army uh, have said that uh, their intention is to to reconquer everything that Russia has held or backed since uh, 2014 including Crimea and eastern donbass well I mean uh, that really is uh, would ensure, in my view, extremely dangerous Russian uh, escalation. Not that they necessarily, you know, that, that doesn't mean that the Ukrainians will be able to do it. Uh, but if the Biden administration, as, you know, it has, bits of it have suggested, think that that would be very dangerous, uh, then they obviously, you know, need to, to, to have uh, a plan in place to, to avoid that. Um, and to propose a compromise along different lines. But that would take, you see, th- given the, the atmosphere uh, in uh, Washington and you know, also in, to some extent in Europe as well, I mean that would take considerable moral and political courage on the part of the administration and it will come as no surprise to any of you that that is you know, not a commodity um, in tremendously great supply at the moment.
0: I want to get into the issue of negotiations and and what an endgame might look like, but I I do want to kind of follow up on this because obviously uh, a a big part of the story over the past year, when it, if we're talking about the Western role in this conflict, has been weapons. Um, and and I wonder if either of you are sort of or both uh, are sort of starting to worry about. What seems to be an emerging pattern where the Ukrainians make a demand for some more advanced weapon system, whether it's longer-range artillery or tanks now, uh, or you know the, the latest one is F-16s and aircraft. And the U.S. and Western, you know, other Western states, other NATO states, kind of uh, chafe against that a little bit. They they argue that it's not right, it's not time, they don't need this. Uh, but eventually they give in. And the pattern, if that repeats, now that we're on F-16s, I don't know where the next stage of that, next step of that is, but I'm a little worried about what it might be. So I don't know. I wonder if either of you have uh, seen some disturb anything disturbing in that.
1: I mean, I, I think the administration has some hard and fast lines, um, and they've been very clear on that from day one. And from my perspective, you know, talking to folks, um, you know, talking to folks and hearing what people are saying around D.C., that they stick to those very hard lines. But those hard lines are basically no U.S. personnel on the ground, in basically any capacity, you know, no fighting, but also no support, no training inside Ukraine, no managing logistics lines, none of that, just no US forces. But I think other than that, as you say, it's, it's been a little loosey-goosey, right, that they they often come out and say, we won't do this. And then under pressure from allies in Europe, under pressure from the Ukrainians, under pressure from those in DC, they will backtrack. Um, and I think the tanks debate that we saw over the last few weeks was sort of one of the clearest examples of that, right? The US has committed to send M1 Abrams tanks to Ukraine, but they're not going to arrive for six to nine months. They're very hard to maintain and train Ukrainians on. Um, And it really basically looks like the administration is committed to send this in order to get the Germans to send the easier to maintain, easier to send, easier to train tanks. Um, And so, you know, there's, there's some weird political and signalling stuff going on with the weapons. Um, it's definitely not at this point just a strategic question.
2: I mean, I think part of the problem is that, uh, you, you know, you, you have a, a, a lobby in Eastern Europe, um, backed, of course, by hawks in, in Washington and in uh, in Britain, which is actually determined uh, to try to completely defeat Russia uh, in the hope of uh, overthrowing the Putin Regime and even, you know, breaking up the the, the, the Russian Federation. And as uh, an EU diplomat explained it to me, you know, if in a, a, any group of people you have four people who abs- are absolutely determined to get something what they want and don't give a damn about unity, and another twenty five or so who basically care most of all about keeping an alliance united and keeping a group together. But in any human interaction, it's pretty obvious who's going to win. And I think that's also what what has happened.
0: When you try to look toward what an end game scenario might look like, or even a scenario where you can actually bring uh, Ukraine and Russia to a negotiating table, which in itself seems to be, uh, impossible right now. What do you, what, what should people look for? What are the, the, the markers of a, a situation where, uh, the two sides might actually be amenable to sitting down and talking about? Um, and I mean, you know, this could be, you know, it's kind of general, uh, what does the literature say or, you know, specifically, what would you look for in this conflict, uh, to get, to get the parties to, to actually interact with one another?
2: Well, it seems to me that you know it will depend in the end critically on what happens on the battlefield, and uh, if I'm you know told from at least what used to be well-informed sources in Moscow that if uh, if Russia can conquer the whole of the Donbass, that that would be enough for Putin to declare, to declare victory and offer a ceasefire uh, and uh, basically talks without preconditions. Now, that of course would be Rejected, it looks like, by the Ukrainian government, but it could be appealing to some uh, governments in the West, and obviously the Russian hope would also be to to create splits in the West over that. Uh, but um, I mean, to judge what by what the Biden administration has been leaking, if the Ukrainians could break through to the Sea of Azov and you know and cut off Crimea by land, then the Biden administration would hope that that might bring Russia to the negotiating table, basically, I think, to withdraw from everything it's held you know, since February of last year, but to have a ceasefire that would leave the other areas, uh, not formally, but de facto in, in Russian hands. But that, of course, depends on, uh, on the Biden administration at that point being able to stop the Ukrainians and having the will, you know, when the Ukrainians seem to be winning to be able to, to say not just to the Ukrainians but also to the Poles and to sections of America of America that now it's time to stop. Uh, of course, the third scenario, but that I think would take could take much longer. Uh, is that if neither side achieves any kind of breakthrough, uh, and you have a, a kind of as has often been said, first world war style stalemate along roughly the same battle lines as now, extending uh, for well, first months and then years. Uh, eventually, uh, both sides decide that there is nothing, you know, nothing more to play for that is worth the immense, you know, human and material sacrifices involved and, you know, agree to some form of unstable ceasefire. So that would seem to be the three. But here we are talking, you know, about ceasefires, not about final peace settlements, which that's, you know, obviously even more difficult.
1: Yeah, I mean, so if, if you think about it in the classic, you know, the literature on war termination, right, which is um, exceedingly rationalist, exceedingly focused on formal models and all that stuff. But I mean, basically boils down to, right, participants enter a conflict, battlefield realities reveal who the strongest party is, and then eventually they reach a point where where they've reconciled, you know, they've dialed down their aims on both sides to a point where they can negotiate. Um, you know, obviously that doesn't always happen in practice for various reasons, including, you know, human nature and people aren't terribly forgiving about war crimes and, and all that kind of stuff. But but we have seen some version of this process already playing out. We've seen in particular, I think, as, as Anatol alluded to there, the Russians really have dialed down their minimal war aims, right? They they have gone from we are going to control Ukraine down to we're going to annex the Donbass in its entirety. And that is a significant downgrade. If on the first day of the war, they had gone for annexing the Donbass, they probably would have managed it no problem. It's a sign of how badly they've done that That is where those aims are now and i'm honestly not sure if they can even achieve that at this point um but you know i mean as anisle says there's there's very few options on the table at this point they're all pretty bad right um either the sides negotiate um Some kind of final settlement. My impression is neither side is ready to do that. Um, They agree on some kind of armistice or ceasefire, which freezes the lines in place and potentially guarantees future conflict. Um, I don't even think we're there yet. Um, Or one side wins a complete battlefield victory, and that just doesn't seem likely. So we're in this very sort of unpleasant place where all of the options are pretty bad. um, And it really is going to take movement on one side or the other just shifting aims before we can, I think, even get to those options.
2: And yes, I mean, as Emma says, it is worth emphasizing because you often get this line you know, in the West that, oh, you know, th- th- there is no sign that Putin has reduced his goals, you know, or given up his goals in Ukraine. Well, as, as you say, Emma, I mean, compared to what Putin was obviously intending at the start of the war, uh, sheer military reality has forced him radically to reduce those goals. You know, we are now we're talking about limited amounts of territory in eastern and southern Ukraine. And, you know, although I know this is a deeply unpopular line, this this is no longer an existential struggle for Ukraine. We've, I think it, it is worth highlighting that, you know, the Ukrainians and the West too have already won a tremendous victory here. Um, by far the greater part of Ukraine, you know, whatever happens will now for the foreseeable future be deeply aligned against Russia and with the West, Um, which, you know, in terms not just of the Russian government's aims a year ago, uh, but in terms of the history of the past 400 years is a tremendous historical transformation because, you know, throughout those 400 years with very brief introductions, Ukraine has been, um, uh, you know, under Russian domination. So I have a question about that. What's the perspe, because uh, this is
3: harkening <laughs> back to a college class I took on Ukrainian nationalism. But how do you think this war has affected the course of Ukrainian nationalism? Because that, that's the nationalist perspective that Ukraine has been under Russian domination. And then the other perspective is that they're one people, right? From what I recall from my undergraduate class. So as someone who, who knows the language, how, how has this reformed Ukrainian nationalism, which itself has been transforming in the last
2: 30 years especially well i mean on the one hand of course it has clearly immensely strengthened ukrainian ethnic nationalism but there are real dangers here uh because um you know still i mean in in ukraine and the unoccupied areas of ukraine um there is a big Russian min- minority and, you know, an even larger population, which continues to speak Russian as its first language. Now, as, you know, various people have pointed out, including um, uh, Alexei, is it, um, um, Alperovitch, former advisor to, uh, uh, to to President Zelensky, um, when the you know, when the Russians invaded, it was clearly, you know, part of Russian hope that the Russian and Russian-speaking population would would really rally to Russia and would welcome Russia's invasion. And they didn't. And the fact that they didn't, you know, was also a colossal blow to to to, to Russian hopes and to Russian propaganda. Well, now, um, and without the West doing. Anything to try to check or criticise this, you know, you have a situation in which the Ukrainian government is burning Russian books, banning, you know, Tolstoy and Pushkin, uh, tearing down statues of, um, you, you know, Russian cultural figures who nothing, you know, in principle to do with the, this invasion, um, and even in some cases banning, you know, speaking Russian. In certain institutions. Now, this is, you know, no way of showing gratitude to your minority for loyalty to Ukraine. And I think, you know, in future, uh, it could create a a huge problem for Ukraine and could, and also to be honest, should create um, major problems for, for Ukraine, for example, trying to move towards membership of the European Union.
1: I mean, I will say the, the other thing is, I, I do think in context, right, we, we talk about the war in Ukraine as if it's something unique, it's something apart, it's part of some new age of history. Um, but as, as many scholars of sort of the former Soviet Union area have pointed out, this is a war of Soviet succession. This is a war caused by the collapse of the Soviet Union 30 years ago. Um, and all of those wars pretty much have had some ethnic or nationalist dimension. Um, and that varies pretty wildly. Like, so in Armenia, for example, in the last few years, we've seen the Armenians moving back towards Russia as they're having to deal with a, an, an Azeri um, war with Azerbaijan. Um, and so the, the one in Ukraine heat is, is no different. Um, but, you know, as as what, what we've basically seen is, I think that the Russians have played their hand extremely badly. Um, you know, when when you and I were in grad school, Danny, you um, Yeah, you're right. It was talked about as Ukraine was one country, two peoples. It was divided down the middle. Um, You know, the the political parties- The left
3: bank and right bank.
1: (laughs) Literally, of the Dnipro River. Um, And, you know, that they, you know, lent towards Russia or lent towards the West. And this was the division. Um, And it's really hard, I think, for people to understand if they don't follow Ukraine closely or haven't been studying it, how much that has changed. Over 10 years. It really has ever since the 2014 invasion. And it's now basically at the point where, I mean, it's very hard to do polling in a war zone. Um But polling suggests that the vast majority of people that, that live in Ukraine and even in most of the occupied territories want to be Ukrainian. They do not want to be Russian. The one exception being Crimea.
2: Yes, I mean, on the the, the line of the uniqueness or newness of this conflict, um, I have to say, um, you know, somebody who worked in South Asia for many years, uh, this, you know, has been so typical uh, of the end of every empire. Uh, you know, look at the British Empire in South Asia, the number of civil wars and interstate wars that came out of that uh, in Africa as a result of the end of the French and the, the Belgian Empires. And then, of course, if you go back further than that, you know, to the, the Spanish Empire, the Roman Empire. <laughs> um, so, no, I mean, there there is nothing, you know, at all special about the fact that, uh, you know, the end of empire leads to... Succession conflicts, or by the way, um, take Sri Lanka. Uh, the fact that these conflicts can can unisimmer and then break out a generation or more after the empire ends.
0: <laughs> Anatol, you you talk about maybe the long term, some of the longer term repercussions of this uh, i think understandable rise in anti Russian sentiment, but there is a nearer term ramification that i don 't you know as we were talking about potential end games or or getting to negotiations and what a settlement might look like uh, there is a domestic political consideration here for uh Zelensky and his government uh in terms of you know how much can can I actually offer uh, at a, at a negotiating table without putting my own political future or life, maybe. I mean, there is an active, I think its size is sometimes exaggerated, but there is an active, uh, right wing militancy in Ukraine. Uh, how do you, how do you sort of uh, account for this sentiment and the domestic politics in, in terms of the possibility of a negotiated settlement anytime in the near future?
2: Well, this was a, apparent even before the war. It, it's often forgotten that Zelensky was elected on a platform of seeking, you know, peace and some form of reconciliation with uh, Russia, and this was to a great extent blocked by, um, you know, Ukrainian militant nationalists, who, at least until the war, uh, n- never had massive political support or electoral support, but of course do have. Street power, and now have very great military power because of their role, you know, in the Ukrainian armed forces, and um, that is why any any peace settlement would require, I think, you know, a a very very strong role for the United States, because the risk is that leaving it up to the Ukrainians could mean not just leaving it up to the Ukrainian government, but basically putting American policy making it hostage to the most extreme Ukrainian forces.
1: Yeah, Zelensky, like all political leaders, is under pressure from a lot of different sides. Um, And we don't have a lot of great visibility into this from the West in in some ways. Um, You know, we know that there have been anti-corruption campaigns against corrupt officials. Um, We know that there have been personnel shuffles in the Ukrainian government, some of which presumably were to do with better prosecuting the war, some of which may have been to do with political opposition. And so, you know, the Ukrainian political system has historically been extremely corrupt and extremely backstabbing. Um And, you know, while I think we would all like to hope that those things will be in decline going forward. Um, you know, there's there's no guarantee that they won't rear their heads. So Zelensky takes a real risk if he if he enters into negotiations with the Russians. And I think we should we should acknowledge that. Um, but equally, um, you know, from the point of view of the US, from sitting here in Washington, right, we you know have to decide at what point, um, you know. Is it a question of, you know, Zelensky's political aspirations to retain power? If that is standing in the way of us achieving some kind of settlement or even just an armistice that's better for U.S. interests, you know, that's not a very good reason to do it. Um, he would not be the first wartime leader massively respected to lose power immediately after the war. I mean, the one that pops to mind that everyone's always comparing him to Churchill. Churchill was at power before the war ended
3: but he's back. He comes back later. Uh, a quick question. What are the U S interests here?
1: Yeah, so you'll get a very wide variety of answers there. Um, you know, the, the ones that I I tend towards are, you know, we we had an interest in making sure that Russia didn't just topple its next door neighbor and start to carve up Eastern Europe, right? We, we had an interest in that. We've achieved that goal. Um, some people would argue that we have an interest in sending weapons to weaken the Russian military for the long term. Um, pretty sure we've done that at this point, too. Um we probably have an interest in not having a permanent war in a state that neighbors um, NATO member countries, that neighbors areas where the US is troops. Um, that's something that, that we're certainly not achieving. Um, and we also, I think, have an interest in, um, you know, pushing Europe towards fending more for itself. And here we're getting up sort of into the bigger questions. Um, but, you know, the extent to which this is keeping the U.S. focused on Europe, when we should be thinking more about Asia. Um, I I have some concerns about that, too. So, you know, I think there are broader issues here than just who controls which town in the Donbass, the policymakers should be thinking about.
3: Maybe, and this is to both of you, just very quickly, um, if one assumes that the U.S.
2: shouldn't be the prime power, what are the interests? Well, in in that case, the interests are in trying to promote, you know, as Emma says, uh, some form of peace settlement that ends the war, ends the killing, uh, has you know, some sort of basic democratic legitimacy. One of the things, you know, that I, I've been emphasising that everybody leaves out now uh, is the question of, at some stage, trying to ask, you know, local people uh, where they want to be, you know, what, what, what their desire is for which country to belong to. Uh, but, um, I mean, on... Uh, the, I mean, I think it's it's worth pointing out that, that the extreme wing of the you know American global primacy camp and the American global primacy camp let, let's face it is coextensive with the the American foreign and security establishment, um, and their extreme wing does indeed want to destroy Russia, um, so uh, so as to completely isolate China and you know leave. America as the the global hegemon. I'm not saying that that is, you know, characteristic of a majority, but one does have to recognize that. Now, (laughs) I would just like to add, when it comes to to, to U.S. national interests, uh, an obvious U.S. national interest uh, is to prevent the American population being incinerated in a nuclear war. Now, I'm not saying that, you know, the, the risks of that are Enormously high, but the, the the danger involved is such that we have to take it seriously. And also, of course, um, you know th- this has been phrased in terms of you know Russia going straight to nuclear weapons at some point. I don't think that's likely at all. But what I can easily imagine, for example, uh, is Russia um, knocking out U.S. satellites, which have done you know have been of such military help. Uh, to, to Ukraine, um, and then that beginning a ladder of escalation uh, with, you know, un, unforeseen results. It's
1: funny. My my guess as to the next step in the escalation ladder is political assassinations in Europe. The point being, the Russians have a lot of options um, before going straight to nuclear weapons, um, many of which end up producing what we call horizontal escalation, right? The war spills out of Ukraine's borders and becomes a broader conflict. Um, So, you know, is 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 right that... The U.S. prime interest here is not getting sucked into a great power war, um, that, you know, produces a larger war that goes nuclear, any of those things. Um, and, you know, from, from my point of view, neither the arguments about, you know, the U.S. retaining its prime position in the world, nor indeed the, the human rights arguments about Ukraine, which I, of which I think there are many justifiable human rights arguments, but I just don't think they rise to the level of taking that risk of great power war.
2: Yeah. yeah.
0: I think this segues nicely into uh, my next question, something, a piece of this that we, we haven't really talked about yet, which is sanctions. Um, because I, I this is another way, in addition to, you know, something you guys have both alluded to, the idea that uh, what the U.S. really wants out of this is a permanently weakened Russia. There, there's the military end of that and sort of providing weapons to uh, help the Ukrainians degrade the Russian military on our behalf. But there's also this sanctions regime that now exists uh, that did not before the war. Uh, There have been varying kind of uh, estimates of how hard the sanctions are actually hitting uh, the Russian economy. Maybe we could start there with kind of your uh, assessment of uh, what the sanctions have actually done, but then uh, also kind of talk about the long-term... Uh, repercussions here are we in a point at a point where these are the new state the new normal this is going to be uh how it is for you know time immemorial now russia's going to be under sanctions like iran venezuela etc or are these things something that could be put on the table uh, in a negotiated settlement
1: yeah i mean so we know the sanctions have hurt the russian economy to some extent um, probably not as much as simply losing its export markets in Europe in general, right? So it's not just the sanctions, it's the fact that Russia has effectively been cut off from the West. Um, there's some new reports out recently that do some really good work on things like circumvention, so how Russia is sourcing chips. Um, for its weapons by going via China or Central Asia. Um, lots of reports that if you go to the shopping centers in Moscow, you can buy your latest, um, season handbag from designer brands because this stuff is just being resold at a 20 or 30% markup. So, you know, sanctions are having some effect. Um, but it's, I think as a lot of us said at the start, it was never going to be enough to actually Stop this conflict, um, you know. And to to your point, Derek sanctions are hard to lift. We know this from experience. Um, They become sort of baked into the political process um, in a way that then politicians become seen as being soft on a country for lifting them. Um, And we saw this repeatedly in the context of the Iran sanctions and the JCPOA that, you know, President Obama offering any sanctions relief to Iran, even as a bargaining chip, that that was letting them away with terrorism and all kinds of things. And I fully expect a similar conversation to play out in the context of Russia sanctions here. And so um, again, back to a point somebody made earlier about political courage, um, any negotiations that would involve sanctions relief um, is going to involve a lot of political courage from a US administration. Um, That seems to be a a very difficult thing to expect.
2: Yes. And I mean, just two other points very briefly. The first is that, as we all know, with extremely rare exceptions, US sanctions policy has never worked in in Iran, in Cuba, North Korea. The other thing, though, that, uh, of course, one must note uh, is that, you know, America and the West are no longer the whole world economically. Uh, And most of the world has, while, you know, condemning the Russian invasion, refused to join Western sanctions. And that includes, you you know, India, uh, which regards itself as a partner of the United States, but a partner, not a country which is going to accept American orders when it comes to, you know, what India regards as its vital interests. Uh, And obviously, I mean, well, that leads to two things. One is, you know, that has given Russia opportunities to resist uh, Western sanctions. But uh, you know it's also worth noting that the United States may have done its itself grave damage by trying to dictate to the world economy in this way um, you know trying to to dominate the US economy for u.s geopolitical goals uh, because you know that might well have worked. Fifty years ago, uh, when the United States was so much stronger economically and the communist bloc was was isolated, but the world is not like that anymore. America's ability to to, to dominate the world is far less, and especially, you know, the suggestion that uh, you know foreign holdings of uh, American bonds and dollars are you know vulnerable to American seizure. Uh, that's a very dangerous message to send to the rest of the world.
1: So I'm a little less, um, I guess, I'm I'm a little less skeptical um, about the preeminence of US financial power going forward. But let me, I guess, just add one caveat on the sanctions don't work thing. Um, Sanctions don't work for producing policy change, right? So sanctions on Russia, I, I do not doubt they are not going to end the war. They're not going to cause the Kremlin to say we're going to end the war. Sanctions can sometimes work for denial, which is to say we can stop a country from getting certain components that they might need to build certain kinds of weapons. So there there's potentially a case to be made for denying Russia some high-end technology and working to put pressure on other countries to deny some of that. Um, but but that's not going to end the war. It's just going to make Russia less militarily capable over the long run. So that's, you know, sanctions work a little for that. They don't do policy change.
2: I agree, yes.
3: So I have a general question um, as, as we sort of enter the final stage of this interview. How does all of this... Um, reflect on U.S. grand strategy as a whole, particularly toward Asia. Emma, you had mentioned that earlier. I was just wondering if we could put what the U.S. has been doing in more of a a global context, because the Biden administration does seem intent on, I I guess, containing China, whatever the hell that means. Uh, Is the U.S. going to be forever in East Asia? Um, I I doubt that that's literally possible for the reasons that Anatole stated about the U.S. share of the global uh, economy and the relative power of, of the U.S. military. But how does this Ukraine policy play into this larger geostrategy of the Biden administration?
2: One thing to note is that, you know, China has been much less supportive of Russia than I think, you know, Putin hoped. This is not an alliance. Um, And I think, you know, China, it's quite clear, did not want this war. I think that, you know, reflects something which should be noticed more, which is that you know, Ch- China's policy remains actually quite cautious, balloons aside. But, I mean, uh, uh, undoubtedly, if you have a long-running war in Europe with a permanent risk of escalation and, you know, uh, a- accidents uh, occurring, which will, you know, radically ratchet up the tension, um, this uh, is bound uh, to be a distraction of the United States and is bound to make Russia more and more dependent on China. It, it can't not. Um, and so, you know, I think on balance, uh, while as I say, I don't think the Chinese wanted this war, probably you can see this playing out to the advantage of China in the long run.
1: I mean, let, I guess let me make three points. Um, otherwise, I'll go on all day about this. Um, so, so one point is, you know, we keep having these debates about whether we're headed into some multipolar world or a bipolar world, where it's going to be the U.S. versus China or everybody. Um, and and the data kind of suggests that while the U.S. and China are going to be ahead of the pack a little, that the world. You know, power is going to be diffused more evenly across the world than it was during, say, the Cold War. Um, and I think we've seen that in practice in the Ukraine conflict. We've seen that countries like India have significant financial power, significant political power. Um, you know, not at the level the U.S. does, but they're more important players than they used to be. So, you know, that's, that's one area where I think we've just seen reality kind of emerging. Um, another point is, you know, I think, um, well, I'm very depressed about this, to be frank, but I think early in the Biden administration, there was, I think, some potential for shifts in U.S. foreign policy. You know, they got out of Afghanistan. There were talks about, you know, the Biden administration seemed more open to things like European strategic autonomy and bolstering European defense. Um, And that has really shifted. The language in the administration is now very much back to maintaining U.S. primacy. The U.S. will manage all problems. Other countries come to us. And maybe that would have happened regardless. Right. But for me, it's quite a pronounced shift in rhetoric from the first year of the administration. Um, And then I guess to, to the third point, which is what we've seen in this conflict is you know, the perfect opportunity to try and bolster U.S. allies to carry more of that burden as U.S. power sort of dissipates. Um, and we haven't done it. Instead, the Biden administration has stepped into the breach and said, the U.S. is here. We will always be here. We will carry the defense burden. Um, and from my point of view, that is just exactly the wrong response. What we have done is recommitted the U.S. to Europe at a time when we need to be thinking more about Asia Um you know, that's a a recipe for just overextension um, going forward.
2: And guess what? After all the promises, the Europeans are in fact doing much less. And why why indeed would they if if America is there constantly to to bail them out? I mean, another thing to note, of course, is that- Why indeed? Why indeed would they? That is a good question. And it is
3: one of the Signal questions of U.S. foreign policy that the United States continues to back European defense like this in 2023 is criminal, in my opinion, given the problems in this country. It is wild that that is not even up for debate in the elite circles.
2: Well, but, you know, it does reinforce U.S. Primacy, and one one of the, the, the reasons why Moscow hesitated to launch this war uh, was that it it did know that that a full scale invasion of Ukraine would drive the West Europeans right back into complete dependence on the U.S., which is what has happened. I mean, the other thing, of course, is, is that um, while you know the Biden administration has described climate change as an existential threat. To, to the United States, I mean, as Emma says, in in effect, it has been. I mean, it hasn't been ignored. I mean, you know, the, the Biden administration has done a, a great deal in that regard, uh, but clearly, it's taking second place now to these old, you know, great power rivalry agendas.
1: Let me inject just one, I guess, hopeful note on the end here, um, which is that despite all of that, despite the US jumping back into Europe. Um, you know, when you talk to European elites and, and policymakers, you do still hear echoes of the worries of the Trump era, right? I think Europe is less sanguine than it was 10, 15 years ago about the prospects that the U.S. is going to stay in, more worried about the re-emergence of some Trump-like figure, of a crisis in Asia that pulls the U.S. away. So I think the factors that had been pushing towards European defense buildup are still there. Um, If the U.S. can get out of the way, it could still happen. Um, But but I think the question of whether we will get out of the way is is the big one at this point.
0: Why don't we, as sort of a final question, maybe take... Uh, a little bit of a retrospective, uh, look, but this is something, uh, Anatole, you alluded to earlier in the interview, which is the international response to the Biden administration sort of demanding, uh, that the world take up sides over this conflict and, and that this is sort of the galvanizing event of our time has been, uh, no, it's not. Basically, I mean, for much of Africa, much of Asia, uh, the response has been, this isn't our fight. We don't care. We're not going to, uh, follow your lead on this. We're going to maintain our relationships with Russia. Uh, has that response surprised either of you to any degree? What does it say about not just the the position of the U.S. in the world today, but the mistakes maybe that U.S. foreign policy has made since the end of the Cold War? And is there any possibility that anybody uh, in Washington is actually listening and taking any lessons away? Uh, from this kind of you know very lukewarm response from from places that during the Cold War might have been uh, more firmly on uh,
3: America's side. Well, we know Washington is listening because we are beating the CFR podcast in the ratings. So American prestige <laughs> is dominating okay. the
2: DC there establishment. <laughs> well i have to say i mean it it didn't surprise me at all because as i say having worked in south asia uh, and then taught in the middle east uh, for for 7 years um i, I was you know in, entirely aware uh of two things i mean one that uh quite honestly i mean so many people in in these countries do not see an essential difference between Russian imperialism and American imperialism, and in some cases, of course, American imperialism has <laughs> been a lot closer to them and done them more damage than Russian has. Um, you know, one must look at the U- United Nations votes on you know on the invasion of Iraq uh, or the intervention uh, in Kosovo, uh, and. The the other thing, of course, is that uh, there is a general and not inaccurate perception that the the, the United States uh, will usually compromise on its ideals when important national interests are concerned. And for countries that feel that they have an important national interest in access to Russian energy, for example, uh, that for them will will trump. Um, the, the The demands of international legality, though one must say of course that at the same time the great majority of countries did uh, and quite sincerely condemn the Russian invasion. It's just a question of you know how many sacrifices they're prepared to make for it, and they look back at Western policy and say that once again, I mean with very rare exceptions, we've never been prepared to to make major sacrifices. Um, perhaps we are now in Ukraine, but we weren't in the past. they won't either.
1: I mean, I I do think that it's it's as much a PR problem as it is a policy problem. Um, Much of the response in Washington to the war in Ukraine has been just extremely solipsistic. Like, we are... So obsessed with the West, and this is the biggest war since you know the 1990s in Europe. Um, that that does not play very well in places in sub-Saharan Africa and places in South Asia, where there have been conflicts, you know, over what, the last just two announcing
3: decades. racism is not <laughs> doesn't play well in the global South. What a shock!
1: <laughs> I was trying to be more uh, polite about it, but but it doesn't play well, right? And I think the the lesson that we should be taking away from this is that our messaging is part of the problem. You know, I, I know our mutual friend Stephen Wortheim made an, uh, an argument right back near the start of the war that, you know, instead of focusing on the democracy versus autocracy messaging on Ukraine, the Biden administration should focus on sovereignty. Because if you look at the way the US talks about the Gulf War in 91, and you look at the way we talk about the Ukraine war, it was easier to get other countries on board with violations of sovereignty. As, as a reason to, to oppose this war. Um, and, and I think, as Anatole says, right, you know, countries definitely oppose this war. The Indians want the war to end, the Chinese want the war to end, right? They're just not necessarily willing to give up significant interests to, in order to see it happen, um, and to me, that really points to the flaws in the U.S. model of the world. We, we have spent so long, you know, expecting that everyone will agree with us, will fall into line, will want to join U.S. alliance structures. That when we when we find countries like India that are more um, just straightforwardly, nakedly realist about these things, right, that they'll align with the U.S. versus China, but they won't necessarily in Europe. Um, it can be very confusing to policymakers. So I think getting getting back to understanding that other countries have the own interests um that would be an improvement for u.s policymakers
0: on that note uh i, I i'm not optimistic but hopefully uh yeah uh you know is uh, as george uh, w bush famously said is our children learning one last time i'd like to thank anatole levin from the quincy institute and emma ashford from the stimson center thank you both for coming on the program